I'm recording without a script tonight because I've got some news. Okay, that sounded overly dramatic. Nobody's sick, everybody's healthy, everybody's fine, everybody's happy, right? That's all we can ask for this holiday season. Is it still holiday season? I think by the time I release this, it's going to be January. Just because it's taking a lot more time these days to put out an episode. And that's what I want to talk about. This is going to be my last episode for now. And why? Well, it's not because I'm burnout, and it's not because I'm not interested anymore. It's actually because I'm going to be leveling up. The people who have helped me bring back Haunting Season this past year and helped me to release an episode multiple times a month created the TikTok that now has, well, at the time of recording this, 265,000 followers. The YouTube brought up to 27,000 followers. I mean, all of that is really awesome. And it has created this momentum. And that momentum is driving me towards something bigger, something more exciting, something kind of huge when you consider all the things I've done before in the past. And so I wanted to do one last episode as a kindness, as a love letter to all of you who have helped bring me to this point of change, this tipping point So this episode is going to feature three stories and three short interviews with three writers that I think are exceptional. They're people who I met through my AutoCrit writing class. And with full transparency, this episode is sponsored by AutoCrit. It's the last episode sponsored by them in the original deal that we made. And so while I am sort of ticking off a box here, I really only had to do one story, but Because, listener, because you have been here with me for so long and because I know you love the stories, I thought, why not do three? That's way more exciting. That's a way more exciting way to bring this chapter to a close. And look, this isn't goodbye forever or anything dramatic like that. In fact, I might even hop on here and post something from time to time. You know, if I get excited or I see a movie I really love and I, I just can't not talk about it. And of course, if you want to keep up with me on a weekly or daily basis, I'll be on TikTok all the time. I'm not going to stop producing content for TikTok because the growth is just unbelievable, really. I'm kind of losing my train of thought a little bit, but that's okay. This is kind of the way these intros often go. So tonight we've got three stories, three wildly interesting, horrific stories, and I can't wait to share them with you. But first, grab your headphones, turn off the lights, Find a safe hiding space and fall in to haunting season. The Farmers by Stephanie Ann. I was 12 when it happened. I still remember that wintry day and relive it every night in my dreams. That was the day I grew up. The day I learned what life was really all about. Survival. It was a snow day, the perfect kind. Fat, fluffy snowflakes tumbled through the air, bumping into one another collecting on the ground. 
It wasn't long before there was enough built up to make a fun-filled day of tobogganing and snowball fights, enough to cancel school for the foreseeable future. Not that we looked too far ahead in those days. That's what separates the children from the grown-ups. When you're young, you live moment to moment, enjoying the little details around you, savoring every sensory response until it's all solidified in your memory. But grown-ups don't live in the present. Their minds dwell in those simpler, comforting times of the past while looking towards the future. Always planning, always trying to get ahead, never stopping to enjoy the moment. It's easy to forget to live in the moment when all you're trying to do is survive until the next winter. Looks like a good day for snow angels, said Ma. She was washing the breakfast dishes in the sink and staring out the small, foggy window. Or a snowman, I said. I don't have any carrots for you, I'm afraid. Harvests weren't as good this year and I can't spare anything. That's okay. I'll use a stick. Then what will you use for arms? I thought for a moment. Well, I'll just look for different sticks. Ma laughed. I sure can't wait to see this snowman. I'm going to make him extra tall, just like Pa. There's certainly enough snow for it. Hopefully enough snow to slow the farmers down, Pa muttered into his newspaper. Ma swatted him with a dish towel. Hush, you. Hun, why don't you go ahead and get a start on the snowman, she said to me. Quietly, I agreed, although I wanted to stay and hear why Pa was in trouble. I knew better than to argue with Ma. As I got dressed in my snow gear in the front hall, I listened carefully for any noise coming from the kitchen. Silence. They were waiting until I was gone. I closed the door very softly behind me as I stepped outside. I wanted them to wonder if I had left yet. I didn't want them to start talking right away or I would miss it. Once I was clear of the door, I hunched over and ran keeping below the window ledges. All I could hear was the snow crunching under my feet until I reached the kitchen window. I fought to slow my breath and my pounding heart as I sat up against the side of the house and listened for the hushed voices of my parents. Already knows about the farmers. Don't they teach it in school nowadays? Yes, but they don't go into details and you know it. They only tell the children that the farmers are the reason we have crops. Well... We won't be able to keep the whole story a secret forever. Kids figure these things out eventually. And if she doesn't figure it out for herself, another child will. And then they'll tell everyone at school. And that's the way it always goes. I don't care. I just want her to have a chance to enjoy her childhood. There was a pause, and I strained to hear the cause of the silence. I glanced up towards the window, worried I had been spotted. But Pa soon started talking again. Bill and Grace said the farmers are coming to this neighborhood for the winter. What? No, Bill is an old drunk and Grace is... is Grace is sober and sound of mind. You knew we had to be on the list this year. Our community had the worst summer crop out of the three boroughs in this area. We barely harvested enough to feed ourselves, let alone stock up the farmers' pantries. They're coming, whether we like it or not. Another pause, and I shivered a little in the cold. We could send her to my parents' place for winter, said Ma. 
They had a good harvest this year. It doesn't matter. You know she'll be safe, even if she stays here. Yes, but I don't want her to be around if they... If we... I waited for Pa to answer after Ma trailed off. Call your mother. We'll drop her off by tomorrow. I slumped into the snow. I liked my grandparents, but I didn't like feeling like I was being babied. I knew the farmers gave us the crops to harvest. They did tell us that in school, but I didn't know anything else about them. I didn't know what my parents knew. When my parents moved on to talking about what to pack for me, I gave up trying to eavesdrop and crawled away from the window. When it was safe to stand without being spotted, I shuffled further into the field, kicking clumps of snow out of my way from time to time. I was no longer in the mood to build a snowman and let myself fall to the ground. I half started a snow angel, but gave up quickly and just lay in the snow, staring at the blank gray sky. By the time it started to snow again, I had forgotten all about being babied, being left out of the adult conversation. I hopped to my feet and got straight to work on the snowman. With renewed determination, I harvested all of the snow from the surrounding area to put into my masterpiece. By the time I completed the first two oversized snowballs, my cheeks were numb from the cold. After finishing the third ball, the head, I realized that I had succeeded in making the snowman at least as tall as my pa. But that was the problem. I was too short to reach the top, too short to put the head on my snowman. Ma! I called across the field. Pa? Nothing but the wind answered me back. I was too far away from the house for either of them to hear me, so I shuffled back through the snow, calling out their names the closer I got. Ma! Pa! I called yet again as I stuck my head through the back door. Ma! Pa! I hollered once more when no one answered me. I stood in the doorway debating whether or not to break Ma's cardinal rule of no snow on the floors while breaking Pa's cardinal rule of letting too much cold air into the house. I decided to risk it and bounded into the house, slamming the door behind me. Ma, Pa, I need one of you to help me with the snowman. I made him super enormously tall, maybe even taller than Pa, but I can't get the head on. I'm too small. I need... I stopped at the entrance to the kitchen. The farmers were there. Two of them. They stopped what they were doing and looked up at me with their large, buggy eyes. One of them slowly pulled Ma's head from its mouth. Threads of blood and saliva clung to its long, sharp teeth as Ma's body crumpled to the ground. Her brain oozed out onto the floor. The other farmer was holding one half of Pa in each hand. His innards had tumbled out at the feet of the farmers. Its inky green body was slick with his blood, as was the floor, the walls, the ceiling, and every other surface in the kitchen. I didn't scream. I couldn't. The farmer, with Ma's brain matter stuck to its lips, approached me. It reached out a hand, and I didn't flinch back. Not even when its scaly hand touched my cheek. Not even when it licked its thin lips with a thick black tongue. Without a word between us, the farmer scooped up what was left of my parents and carried them away. I never cried. I maintained my composure when I went to the neighbors for help. 
pale and shivering. And I didn't cry when my grandparents came to pick me up that night and I passed out in the back seat of their truck. After a respectable period of mourning, they signed me up for school in their community. I dropped out a week later. If a healthy summer harvest was the key to keeping the farmers away, then it was clear to me that tending my grandparents' crop was more important than school. And in the winter, when there was no crop to tend, I participated in my own version of school. I attended community events and made friends with all of the neighbors. I wanted to learn all I could about producing the best summer crop possible. I don't know about the other boroughs, but I do know that I'm now the best there is in this community when it comes to producing summer crops. And I'm always willing to share my knowledge with the younger ones. I've got 73 years experience tending crops under my belt. And in all that time, I haven't seen a single farmer. It wasn't until much later that I learned why the farmers spared me that day. They don't take children. It's much more beneficial to them to take livestock that has already grown and matured and ripened. Livestock that's already had a chance to reproduce. Once I was full grown, my days would be numbered if I couldn't grow good summer crops for them and for the community. I never gave them the satisfaction. I worked hard. I learned all I could. And I never had children of my own. Never even married. Each time I felt like quitting, like giving up, I just pictured the ugly face of that one who licked its lips. Those disgusting lips that were covered in pieces of maw. All right, so we're here with Stephanie Ann, the writer of The Farmers. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. I want to start off, uh, well, one, just gushing. I, the, from the moment I read this story, it was somehow familiar to me. I think because I was a huge fan of the movie Signs, and there are just elements of that in this story, naturally, because it's, you know, kind of in the middle of nowhere, involves farming, involves aliens. So that was already a deep connection for me. And then just the the honesty of the character, I think, our main character and her vulnerability in this story. So I, I was so excited that I got to put this on the show. Thank you for submitting it. And to tell me where the inspiration came from for this. This was actually um, inspired by a writing prompt from the website Readsy. Basically, at the beginning of the pandemic, I lost my job because of COVID. Mm -hmm. And up until that point, writing for me, it was, you know, writing is okay. You can do your writing, but make sure you prioritize your real job first. And so I always felt like my writing was getting pushed to the back burner. And then when I was figuring out what to do with myself now that I lost my job, I joined a bunch of different writing communities to see what worked for me and just to get myself back into writing every single day. And so with that particular community, they sent out like weekly prompts via email. You could write short stories and submit them to contests. And the prompt for that one, I think, was just write a story of an adult looking back on something that happened as a child. I live in Ottawa. It snows here. It's cold. And I just 
started writing and that's what happened. Anytime there's aliens, there's a a little bit of sci-fi in there as well. Is sci-fi kind of linked to who you are as well or is it primarily horror? I mean, I'm kind of surprised it took me so long to realize I liked horror, especially because sci-fi is a big part of not just me, but of my family. My grandfather got me started into Star Trek at a really young age. Like our whole family was just Star Trek. That was our thing. And so even when I am trying to veer more towards horror, I find those sci-fi elements still keep popping up. For a while, that's what I thought I wanted to write until I discovered my love of horror. Yeah, I've written a bunch of horror stories where I get to the end of it. I'm like, yeah, that monster ended up being an alien. Cool. Uh, So it's just, (laughs) it keeps popping up for me. There's a an incredible amount of positivity in that show about embracing each other, embracing other cultures. It's such a positive show. How did you get from that to horror, to writing someone being ripped in half and eaten by yeah. aliens? <laughs> oh, man. I, it's, it's one of those things where I don't entirely know where the love of horror came from, but I am also surprised it took me so long to realize that I love it because no one in my family loves scary stuff. It was not something I was brought up to really engage in until I think it was my grandfather again was like, oh yeah, if you liked this thing, you should try reading Stephen King. And for years, I couldn't even watch horror movies because I was too scared. And I was like, oh no, I'll, I'll just read the books. It's fine. But looking back, I've always been drawn to characters that are like more other, more monstrous. And, you know, the... The kind of negative part of it all is both sides of my family have gone through some generational trauma, and there is a bit of a cynic in me as a result, and I've gone through my own trauma, which thank goodness for therapy, um, but I I do tend to look at the darker side of things, I think, because of all that, and I mean, even that shows up in my writing a lot is complicated family relationships just because that's what I'm used to from my own experiences. So I like the idea of that positive next generation type world, but then there's that dark part of me that's like, life sucks and Here's sometimes the reality. there are monsters. <laughs> Here's where we'd like to be. Here's where yes. we are. Yeah. No, I... I have often talked about on this show um, how my writing is therapy for me and I'm, I'm able to take sometimes just a, a small thing that I can't stop thinking about and c- turn it into a monster and kill it or have it kill me or, or my character mm-hmm. or something. And um, I totally, totally vibe with that. So we met through, I mean, your story was submitted to Haunting Season through our network, uh, which is through the our sponsor, Autocrit, mm-hmm. uh, and the Nightmare Fuel class. Were there particular things that you felt like you got out of the class that have influenced your work moving forward? Yes. Um, the um, what if moments uh, when Gareth was talking about keep an eye for the keep an eye out for those what ifs. The moment he said that, it's like it flicked a switch in my brain. And you know, I've always been open to looking for those moments in the outside world of like, oh yeah, I can turn that into a story. But I'm noticing it more now just because I am, I guess, more aware of 
yes, actively look for those what-if moments. If I remember correctly, the example Gareth gave, who's the teacher of this nightmare fuel class, when you see something out of the corner of your eye and, you know, this motion and you turn and you're like, oh, it's a bag stuck in a tree, don't just write it off and walk on with your day. Go like, well, what did I think it might be? What could it be? What if it was not a bag in a tree? What would it be? I think about that all the time too. And I feel like that's been very helpful. And as has, you know, the entire course. Like I said, it's... um, for anyone listening who's who's interested in, in taking a writing course, it's really affordable. It was a really cheap class. And um, it, it just had so much that I feel like I'm still working through the course materials. And then, of course, there's the community, which is how we linked up and, and how you were able to submit to Haunting Season with your story. Yeah, the community is fantastic. And I mean, like I said, at the beginning of the pandemic, I checked out a bunch of different writing communities. And Autocrit is the one that's just worked the best for me and I find I learn the most and even just the Tuesday YouTube live streams just you know commenting to all the people who show up for that even that has been really helpful for me just as a way to connect with other writers and learn things and yeah I my husband knows Tuesday live streams he doesn't bother me that's my time (laughs) I need to get more involved in that. I'm on the West Coast, so I think they're normally around like 10 a.m. and I'm in the middle of work. Oh, yeah. um, I I know they're there afterwards and I know there's this like huge library of free content from Autocrit on on YouTube and uh, interviews with authors and all that stuff. Um, But this interview isn't meant to be all about Autocrit. Um, I want to know, so right before we started recording, you told me that you started self-publishing, I think, Mm -hmm. over the summer. Yes. And um, tell me about what you've published so far and what you're working on in the future. I've got two short story collections. One is published, and that's the one I published in the summer. Uh, It is available on Kindle, Apple Books, Kobo, Nook. Uh, It's called Please Rate Your Satisfaction and Other Unsettling Stories. And that one is more sci-fi, lots of the robots doing horrible things, a bit of cosmic horror. The next one, it's being published on January 18th. I'm just waiting for Amazon to get through on setting that one up for pre-order, but holiday office closures slow things down. Uh, That one is called They See Me and Other Haunting Stories. And that one's more like creepy monsters and ghosts and humans who are up to no good and things like that. So Awesome. Well, we'll put links down below uh, in the show notes so that everybody can find it. And I want to thank you so much, Stephanie, for coming on and talking to me today. Oh, thank you for having me. The Dead of Winter Cottage by Lucy Lynn. Valerie watched the live stream, wrapped tightly in her reading couch blanket, flinching with every loud smash of the coffins caving in on screen. The abandoned cemetery looked familiar. She remembered news, photos of those same crumbling graves, covered in slimy moss. There had been a few articles in local community sites about the recent floods unearthing centuries-old coffins in a remote riverside valley, even some human bones. The kids filming this were hooded and anonymous. 
They had broken through the barriers around the derelict graveyard, blocking the public country path with signs to keep out until the human remains had been transferred to a new location. They were hammering holes in the rotting caskets to film what was inside. She looked away every time they lowered the camera to light up the dark holes where the dead lay. Hiding behind her blanket, she didn't see them discover the bracelet. But she listened to them talk excitedly as they, supposedly, removed it from its owner's skeletal hand. Valerie peeked between her fingers when she thought it might be safe to look, and so she first saw the bracelet pop up on a thumbnail in the video. There were some other items, too, each with a price tag. The banner running under the video gave an address, and first come, first served. I bet they got it in some charity shop. They just faked discovering it in the cemetery just so it would sell faster. Valerie rolled her eyes but couldn't help but be attracted to the moon shapes and solstice runes, fitting for a Christmas present to herself. At least then she would get something. Five minutes later, Valerie opened the door to the frosty night. She let it slam behind her as she walked past the Tudor-style winter cottage sign by her garden gates. It swung in the winds, groaning and bouncing on the ancient stone wall as her footsteps died away. Two hours later, the soft, rosy rays of dawn were coming through the cottage's crooked windows. The antique wrist cuff sat in a sheer plastic bag next to a giant Christmas pudding-shaped mug on the kitchen island. Valerie carefully poured herself some scolding ginger cinnamon tea, unable to take her eyes from the mystic symbols. Among the cast-iron stars and diamante swirls of clouds, the phases of the moon were set in a most unusual style of jasperware cameo. The artist had used both black and white against blue to depict the waxing and waning lunar cycle. It was spellbinding. What if a corpse really was wearing it, interred for hundreds of years in that grave? She held the plastic bag up to the light. No sign of rust, or mold, or warping. The damage you'd expect to see on jewelry stewed in the juices of a rotting cadaver. It's nonsense. They staged it. Valerie gleefully opened the plastic pouch and slid the cuff on, clipping the fastening closed, and enveloped her wrist with an unpleasant, moist sensation. Something was wrong with her eyes. The room looked glum, colorless. Clouds must have suddenly rolled across the morning skies. Glancing at the window, the sky was clear but strangely darkening. There was a vague feeling of otherworldliness, an eerie sensation of unreality. It brought up a distant but beloved memory, the 1999 solar eclipse, the only total eclipse in her lifetime, after the drive to Devon to enter the line of totality, wearing the goofy glasses, they stood silently on the beach as the sun vanished. That ghostly darkness and the peculiar sensation of the penumbra, the shadow of the moon. That's what this felt like. There's been nothing in the news about an eclipse, though. A chill crawled down her spine. No further investigation was warranted without a nice warm sip of her steaming Christmas brew. 
She took the mug in both hands, but her hands came to her lips, empty. The mug was still on the counter. The steam swirled fast over it. Valerie closed both hands around it, yearning for its warmth on her skin. Nothing. Then her hands slid through till they met together, blending into the mug. Valerie forgot to breathe. Her eyes widened, her hands like a prayer horizontally piercing the mug across the middle. Her fingers protruded from the front and her wrist came out the back. With a yelp, she pulled her hands to her chest and stared accusingly at the cup of tea. Valerie pushed the mug, hoping it would topple over. Her hand went through it. The steam seemed a little disturbed, flattened for a moment as if someone had waved over it. Then it curled up again and kept steaming normally. Am I immaterial? Is this a dream? Her heart rate accelerated as dread set in. She took a few steps back. The room was deathly still and slightly faded like an old photograph. Outside, the morning was getting darker instead of brighter. Valerie screamed. She heard her own cry in a dreadful echo, like resounding from a cave's endless depths. It was the most haunted sound she had ever heard. And yet she savored it for a moment. Good to know she still had a voice. Someone answered. From inside her own cottage came a man's hoarse cough. It was wet and sickly, with an anguished gasping for air. <laughs> There's someone upstairs. Valerie looked at her ceiling from where the noise came, roughly above the couch. That would place him in the spare bedroom. Had he broken in while she was out, just before dawn? Steps pounded overhead. I could make a run for it. Get some help down at the coffee shop? Valerie headed for the door, quietly as possible, fearing he might hear her and run down the stairs to block her escape. An ancient floorboard creaked underfoot. The creak was answered from above. He was moving. It wasn't steps, but dragging, something heavily crawling on the floor. Valerie watched the ceiling hesitantly, waiting for the next sound. Instead, fingers came through the plaster. She was paralyzed, able only to stare. A hand pushed out of the ceiling. The arm that followed it was gray with decomposing flesh. The elbow snapped as the palm smacked flat on the ceiling, pushing hard. Another hand came out fast, part bone with rotting strips of dangling muscle. Both hands squelched as they pressed the ceiling to heave. A head emerged between them upside down with the arms bent behind it like a two-legged spider. She ran. She got to the door and reached for the handle. Her hand swished through it. Her ears prickled as whispers spoke to her. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. The woeful warning came from outside. Valerie had no time to guess who was in her garden. She tried the handle with both hands. Her fingers met without touching it. How do I open the door? Run, the whispers lamented. Help me. Open the door. I'm stuck. He's here, they wailed. 
Valerie smelled the stench of open graves. She spun around. A corpse was standing before her. The head that had been hanging upside down from the ceiling had now brought the rest of its frame of blackened bone and necrotic tissue. Skeletal fingertips stretched out towards her. No, don't touch me. Valerie backed away against the door and right through it. Shuddering, she had whooshed through the wood panels and was standing on her front steps. She made to run but stumbled and stopped halfway across her front garden. A thick gray haze made it hard to see where she was stepping. There was no one on the path, no one cycling, even though it was the busiest time of the morning. The row of cottages across the country road were mere shadows, receding outlines of the buildings that should be there, and above her was no sky, only gray whirls of mist. The most unbearable part of this inexplicable desolation was the deafening silence. She wanted back in the safety of home. She made for the door handle, and this time she knew her hand would slide through it without touching it, and so it did. Valerie looked at her hands, nothing unusual about them. The new cuff was beautiful on her wrist. The occult engravings of the lunar cycle bothered her. It was the colors. The white orb's crescents gradually darkened until the full moon was black. Shouldn't it be the other way around? Black for new moon, white for full moon? It's not the moon. It's a solar eclipse. A cold fear dripped to the pit of her stomach. The sequence of events somehow made it seem as if Valerie caused the eclipse by putting the bracelet on. Stupid, of course, childish thinking, but she wanted it off. Its clasp was subtle, concealed in the pattern, but she remembered where it was. She carefully pinched it with two fingers. Her nails vanished into the ornate stars up to the first knuckle of her fingertips. What is happening? How do I take it off? Something moved in her peripheral vision. A figure was standing behind her rosebush, swaying softly. Another shadow further back was slowly banging its head against the window. Winter Cottage is his, came the disembodied whispers from many different directions in the mist. Winter Cottage is his. Winter Cottage is his. Winter Cottage is mine. Who are you? The figures wore cotton skirts, leather-striped boots, and bell-sleeved shirts, all caked with mud. They had contrived to look like medieval peasants, and as if on the verge of death from some disease long extinct, they emitted a sickly, sweet stench. Are you the kids who sold me this? Valerie hadn't seen their faces under their hoodies this morning. You clearly haven't showered since breaking into those coffins. Did you follow me home? There was no reply. The strangers backed away into the fog until they were only shadows. Stupid kids. Probably filming this too. And the haze must have come from a hidden smoke machine she would no doubt find if she searched her garden. The shadows in the fog gradually multiplied, hovering despondently. Hey, she shouted. Tell your friends to get out of my house right now. Valerie stormed up to her door, and when her hand slid through the handle, she was incensed. You drugged me. Did you put something in my tea? You realize how dangerous this is? But I didn't drink the tea. I wasn't able to pick up the mug. 
the bracelet. You smeared something on the inside to be absorbed by my skin. Valerie wanted it off. She frantically clawed at it, but her fingers whisked into her own arm and wrist. Fine, if I'm... I don't know what... I'll, I'll enter through the closed door. She stumbled forward, fully expecting her forehead to bounce off the wood panel, ready to welcome the bump and feel like she existed once again. She was standing in her hallway. Could a drug do that? Must be hallucinations. Chemical side effects... The important thing was not to panic. I don't want it on me. She had this sudden urge to slam it on the counter until it opened. Hallucinations or not, surely the clasp would break. She ran to the kitchen and raised her hand, aimed the bracelet at the corner, and smashed it with all of her strength. Her hand hit nothing and swung behind her. The bracelet had not a single crack on it. A creaking from the ceiling above. Someone walked on the floorboards. He's still upstairs. What do they want from me? Feeling dizzy with fear, she leaned against the mantelpiece to regain her balance. There was something chilling in her photographs there. A shade had appeared in some of them. Is that him? Over her aunt's shoulder and beside her husband, who was raising a glass of mulled wine even behind herself at age nine, as she licked cookie dough from a wooden spoon. The dead face, like a vapor, looked on. He wasn't in any pictures taken outside the cottage. He was in all of those taken within. Did those kids photoshop my framed pictures? Why? Valerie felt movement behind her and swerved around peering from beside the cupboard, his malignant face half-obscured. He was watching her with a single eye festering in its bloody cranial cavity. The forlorn whispers came suddenly. Don't come back. Don't come back. At the windows, the shades had gathered. Their fingers pressed against the glass, hair covering their faces. He says, do not return. He says, or else you never leave here again, he says. He says? I never heard him say anything. The ghoulish intruder had vanished. She panicked at the idea of not knowing where he was. Out of nowhere, his putrid face leaned into her own. He snarled with skeletal jaws, the decayed flesh revealing far too many blackened teeth where cheeks should be. She tried to take a step back, but she felt a tug on her hand. He had grabbed her wrist. How can he do that? I can't even hold my own hand. He wasn't holding her hand. His bony fingers were wrapped around the bracelet. With a brutal pull, he wrenched it off and let it bounce on the floor, pushing her away. Valerie fell backwards, but the couch broke her fall. Last thing she saw was the bracelet roll and vanish behind the kitchen counter. Her head pounding with a migraine, Valerie rubbed her eyes. She pushed herself up on the reading couch cushions. The room was spinning. Blinded by the sunlight, she heard dulled conversations and bird songs come faintly through the windows. The country path was busy with tourists in woolly hats, meandering to the Christmas market about to open. Winter berries bloomed fragrant 
in her neighbor's garden, and the whole row of cottages opposite had smoke rising from their chimneys against the blue December skies. Just to make sure, Valerie pinched the cushions beside her, and the soft fabric gave in. I can touch. She smiled, rubbing her bare wrist soothingly. I must have slept and dreamt the whole thing. Valerie's words died on her lips as she saw her mug of tea. Did I make tea and sleep without drinking it? There had not been enough time to sleep. The mug was still steaming. One worry drowned all others. Where is it? In the vision, the apparition had dropped the cuff behind the counter. Valerie leaned in. There it was, sitting on the floor. So then, is there really a ghost in my home? Glancing at the ceiling, she listened for footsteps. She heard none. The cottage was peaceful, warm, and welcoming. Is it, though? Valerie picked up the bracelet. Only one way to find out. So we're here with Lucy Lynn, the author of The Dead of Winter Cottage. Thank you for writing this and submitting it to Haunting Season. I loved this story so much. Oh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to write it. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed writing it. What was the inspiration for this? Where did this come from? Okay, so the specific ghost in Valerie's cottage, that was a ghost. Me and my friend were convinced haunted an old flat I used to live in. I lived there with my boyfriend at the time. And that room was um, the office and game room. So it had um, a couch. Um, So if I was studying or writing long into the night, I would just take a nap on the couch. After midnight, I would wake up and there was a chair creaking from the corner of the room, like the noise of a chair creaking. But there was no chair in that room. The only chair was like the desk chair, which was in the other end, and it made no sound. And the other thing that happened, because that happened many times before I started thinking that it's um, something supernatural. The other thing that happened was when I woke up, I always thought there was someone else in the room with me. So I would wake up and I would think my boyfriend had walked into the room. And then I realized there's no one else there. It's just me. And that night, I dreamt of a man sitting in a chair. He was facing the wall. He was like facing the wall. And then if I was sitting in the room, he would have his back to me if I was in my de- like in, in the couch or in my desk. And all I had in that corner was just a chest of drawers. I was just trying to find if there's anything strange there. I pushed it aside to just look at like the wall and the floor. It had this, it was a wooden floor, but it had this base of concrete. I realized that is something you would have on a floor if you have a fireplace there. Then all of a sudden it made sense for somebody to be having a chair facing the wall, just sitting in that corner late at night. We lived there for another two years and it kept happening. Like, oh wow. Even, even if I didn't sleep, if, even if I was just writing, past midnight, I would now hear the creaking behind me. And yeah, that was the, I, 
the story of like the the man in the spare bedroom. How did you end up linking that into the bracelet and the cemetery and the the kids doing the live streaming of breaking into coffins? Okay, so so the um, the bracelet is another category entirely. So that is cursed objects. It was a big part of my childhood. It doesn't happen anymore, but the church was quite powerful where I was growing up. Um, so holy items were actually believed by grown-ups to have powers. Like they would say that water blessed by a priest at an altar can chase away evil, like holy water. And just to know that my mom is an atheist, so I was brought up to believe in science and logic and not to believe in these things, but it was everywhere around me. People would believe that a priest has the power to cleanse just using his holy Bible and holy water um, and to purify. And they did believe in demons and in evil spirits. It's a lot like movies today. When we watch a movie and we see like a haunted house and a priest will come to cleanse it. Mm -hmm. That ritual... That, that is a ritual that people actually didn't believe in when I was growing up. And when I was about 10 years old, I actually had a ritual done to me that is very similar to an exorcism. Oh, no. Yeah. So my mom tried to resist it as much as she could. Um, but in the end, she had to give in. So the reason was I had blisters and calluses on my hands because I was doing gymnastics. And there were some women at my mom's work and they saw it and they were convinced that a priest needs to bless it to make it go away. So my mom told many times that it was just from working out at the gym and they told her she should tell her priest. And she said, I don't have a priest. And they said, they went and told their priest. So in the end, in order to shut them up, my mom came to me and she said, would you, would you agree to just you know, do this, to just get it over with? And I was like, yeah, yeah okay, I'll tell it. And um, they took me to this house uh, one night and all these women were there and the priest arrived. And it was this, this sense these people had that because he had these items, like because he had the Holy Bible, which was just a gold book. And um, he had a little pot of incense and he had a little uh, bottle with holy water. And he had a cloth, which he was going to lay the Bible on. So these items, all these women, they actually believed that they were supernatural. Like they had power. And just mm -hmm. to see that and to see adults believe in it, it was incredible. It was, I was, I was like, what's going on? Like, how? I, I, I had never seen anything like it. And then um, they put me in a room with him. And it was a room that had candles. They, like they had switched off the lights and it was just candles. <laughs> And then they left the room. So my mom was like, if you need me, I'll be outside. Just shout. And then the ladies were like, do not interrupt. Like anything the priest says, you will do. So I was like, yeah, okay. Um, and he didn't do anything insane. He did exactly what you would see in a movie today. So he basically just opened the, the Bible and just read and chanted. <laughs> And he um, he had the incense, he held my hands, he told me to hold my hands above the incense, facing up, like palms up. And he did the sign of the cross over my hands. Mm -hmm. And that lasted for about 10 minutes. So he was just chanting and doing the sign of the cross, and that was it. And um, I, was, I was terrified. I was really scared because I hadn't been to church. We didn't do that. And in the end, I started crying. And um, when he saw that I was kind of reaching my limit, he kind of just, 
he said he was done and he um put some he rinsed some holy water over my hands and that was it then my mom took me for ice cream afterwards oh that's nice (laughs) (laughs) it was just that was my first i don't know the time the first saw that people believe in power of objects and ever since then i thought to myself if they think that objects can be holy then surely objects can also be cursed i think when it comes to cursed objects it it's more what people believe around you because that by part of suggestion can influence you in ways that you didn't expect even if you don't believe yourself and it can be positive too. Watch this transition. So you told me right before we started recording that you didn't expect when you took the nightmare fuel class for your work to start getting out into the world so quickly. And Gareth is all about empowerment. Um, he's the guy who runs the class. Can you tell me about your experience with nightmare fuel? I loved the the motivation that it gives you. I liked obviously all the little bits that. For example, the fact that they give you a, a sheet to make your characters, but then they also give you a sheet to make your monsters. And I thought that was hilarious. And also how they teach you to uh, find the beats in your story. I remember because I also did um, story sorcery. So I've done both the fantasy class and the horror class. And I remember after every class, I would go back to something I've already written and actually try to check the things that I learned that day against my work and if they said oh every story has to have like specific characters like you have to have the opposition character and the sport character and I would be like do I do I do I have these and I would go back to my story and try to read and think oh it's the grandpa and it's the sister and try to make sure that I've got all the things that they said and when you do that your story becomes so much better and also it gives you more ideas and it makes you more inspired to like write more but that was just the beginning for me like after after I finished the class which is only a month unfortunately and and I entered the community then it was like a whole world of things going on I love all the events that they do and it totally fills me with enthusiasm my favorite 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 one is the writer interviews because when you're in the when you're in the pro so you get exclusive interviews that you can't have in the open youtube and then you get to actually speak to writers that you like and ask them questions so that was fantastic like ask them about the writing process yeah, I need to take more advantage of of everything. I sometimes get a little overwhelmed with uh, <laughs> just how much content they put out that, that that they make available for us. Like there's not enough time in the day almost, um, which is great because I never feel like I'm burning through everything in the community. Um, and there's plenty of free stuff on there on the Autocrit um, YouTube channel as well for people who who want to dip their toes in the water. So this has given you a lot of productivity. What what do we see in the future of Lucy Lynn, what's what's coming down the pike? Do you have anything um, planned that you can talk about? This story was Valerie's story. Um, she's one of three that I'm writing at the same time. So it's Jade, Valerie, and Isla. They all come upon secret objects with sinister origins and mystical powers, but they have different kind of foes to fight and different journeys to take. Um, the the series is going to be called Spirit Fleet, so they will all meet the Spirit Fleet, which I'm not going to say what it is. No, I uh, don't. So Valerie's the Valerie that was the first 
chapter of the story that uh, I submitted to your competition. But um, I went on to have a full story for her, like an actual little novel. And um, that's going to come out hopefully in Halloween. Exciting! To I'm excited about it. I, world, when yeah. I finished this story, I was like, "Oh, that's the perfect ending!" And now I want more. Um, <laughs> so I'm really excited to hear that her story is going to continue, yeah. and that there are uh, other stories to to look forward to in between. Uh, are you self publishing these? How how can people find them when they come out? Yeah, I am self publishing them. So at the moment, they're just going to be on um, on Amazon probably. Uh, at the moment, uh, it's just my website, which is lucilin.com. Lynn is spelled L-I-N-N-E. This is exciting. So I'm going to put a link to your website down below. I'm really excited to read your work uh, as it develops and as these stories continue. And uh, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. It was great. The Longing Trees by Mara Hages Burridge. Weather's turning, ma'am, and we're losing daylight, the driver shouted from his perch atop the two-seater carriage. We'll be needing to stop soon. Genevieve Forsyth tugged aside the carriage's window curtain. Blank fields rolled past, scattered with white patches where snow gathered in plowed ruts. Got a village ahead, the driver continued. We could find an inn? The driver's voice ached with hope. Flecks of snow settled on the hard ground. Genevieve pushed her hand back into a fur-lined mitt. Of course. The seat across from Genevieve was cold. It would never be filled again. No other could replace him. The sound of hooves slowed as the driver steadied the horses before reaching the village. Outside, at the center of a field, a patch of trees had been left standing. Their shadows stretched towards a cluster of low buildings. Despite the trees' bare branches, they entirely blocked the landscape behind them. It was peculiar that so few trees could obscure so thoroughly. She shivered, and her eyes returned to the empty seat. The trees? The daughter of the innkeeper had brought Genevieve's supper to the room. She wore her hair tied in a simple knot, and her dress was acceptably clean. Oh, yes. Silence punctuated her words. The longing trees. We don't go near them. Why ever not? Them's wishing trees. Places for longing. Leads to no good. Messing with them? Genevieve thought of her journey that day. The empty seat. Longing is a terrible thing, indeed. That's right, ma'am. The young woman shuffled her feet. Is there nothing else? Stay, please. Tell me the story of the trees while I eat. You sure, ma'am? It's not for the faint-hearted. I'd like to hear about the trees. As you wish. The corner of the maid's lips turned up in a wicked grin and her eyes glinted. Better talking with you than cleaning downstairs. She dumped herself onto the bed, causing its springs to creak. For centuries it's been said that some folk got their heart's desire while many more never returned. An oil lamp hissed in Genevieve's gloved hand. The snow glittered like diamonds behind her. The village was silent, and no lights shone from windows. Every resident would be curled under their thickest blankets, 
The snow had fallen fast and thick in the hours since her arrival, but then the clouds had broken and revealed a full moon. It lit the land in an eerie inversion, the white ground brighter than the star-speckled sky. Each footstep creaked into the blanket of snow. Its chill cut through her boots, which were never intended for field walking, with their modest heels and smooth soles. Her ankles wobbled on an unseen ridge, nearly making her fall, and her gasp billowed as thick as a chimney in the frozen night. The cops lay ahead. Some tree trunks shimmered in the moonlight, silver birches, but others were only stout black pillars cut against the darker shadows within. This was insanity. Believing a maid's fairy tale, no tree spirit could grant wishes. Such stories were for children and village folk, not a modern woman such as Genevieve. A dozen yards from the trees, the snow underfoot abruptly ceased. A ring of clear soil curved around the trunks, scattered heavily with leaves that were turning to mulch. She paused at the edge of the thaw, then stepped across the line. The air was warmer, closer to the trees. They must hold heat from the day or some such other scientific process. Strange, yes, but not so unusual. And it was only a little warmer. A gnarled oak stood closest to her, its branches stretched outward, reaching for sunlight away from the shade of its taller companions. It would make a fine marker for her to judge a completed circuit around the patch. Three laps of the trees were needed. The young woman from the inn had said it must be no less, or the magic would not work. And no more, or there would be terrible consequences. Genevieve held the lamp high and picked her way across the ground. Her eyes flicked between the trees and the mud, determined not to lose her footing, lest a turned ankle end her adventure without a satisfactory conclusion. One, two, three... She counted the trees as she had been told she must. The correct total was essential. The lamp's light swayed, reaching into the copse. It was not so deep as it had looked from the road, and there could only be two dozen trees, thirty at most. Twenty-seven, twenty-eight. The oak stood before her again. That was not so hard. Two more circuits would be necessary. Her eyes picked out every detail, and her mind raced into a future where he returned. Could the story be true? Could it be? A breeze lifted a dusting of ice from the field. It whirled into the bare circle. It hung in the air, loitering as if it were resisting entering among the trunks. Eddies formed, swirls where there should be none, transfixing Genevieve with their languid movement. Needles pricked the back of her neck and across her scalp, but were nothing to do with the cold. She sensed she was being watched. Impossible. Her imagination was galloping away. She resumed walking. One, two, three. There was the oak. Twenty-six, twenty-seven. Her heart pounded. It had been twenty-eight the previous round. A miscount was understandable in such conditions, but the number simply must be right. Presumably, those that had never returned from the trees had counted wrongly. If it weren't all nonsense, that is, she had one more chance. It was there again, the sense of being watched. The field around was deserted. 
She huffed onto her gloved hands for warmth, and her eyes caught movement within the copse. A gust of wind hissed through the striped branches. She barely noticed its bitterness on her cheek as she strained to make out a shape, a figure, standing amongst the trees. It was impossibly tall, at least the height of the inn, and yet only as broad as herself. A trick of the light, surely. She moved her lamp side to side, attempting to throw light further into the copse, but each angle cast a new shadow. She had been warned at the inn that she mustn't enter the patch until she has completed three circuits and found the correct tally. Only then would her wish be granted. Nonetheless, a weight in her stomach told her to retreat and accept that such stories were only warnings for children to not stray from sight. She should accept the unfairness of death, whose steady hand could reach without care to extinguish true love. Most urgently, she must not indulge in superstitious fantasies. Maybe tomorrow she would move on, as everyone insisted she must, but here, alone in the moonlight, who could begrudge her a final hope? Her path around the trees was easier this time, following the flattened route of her previous circuits. Something troubled her, itched for her attention as she counted. Her footfalls sounded different than they had on her first journey. A short rustle mirrored each step, coming from somewhere within the trees. When had that begun? She checked where she was in her tally, examining the trunk to be sure she hadn't counted twice. Eighteen. Definitely. The lamp revealed nothing, but the echo continued when she stepped on. The oak stretched out its branches, glistened in the lamp's light. Twenty-seven. Her first count must have been a mistake. It was time to enter the copse and confirm this was all Bumpkin's folly. Wind sowed among the trees like a long breath exhaled. She picked her way over brittle tangles of wilted nettles and blackberry, Thorns tugged at the sudden hem of her shirts, imploring her not to proceed. The oil lamp's range seemed to shrink as she moved among the trees. Dark elms, twisted oaks, and thin birches stretched their naked fingers over her head. The flame sputtered and died. She had checked its reservoir before leaving the inn. It could not possibly have expired so soon, and yet she was cast into darkness. Frost had settled inside her, and her heart fluttered. She must complete the journey to the center, else this would all have been for naught. There was no going back. It was only a silly lamp. It was only a few more yards. She waited for her eyes to adjust. The air was entirely still. The biting wind had not dared to follow her. Something clattered ahead, giving her the odd image of a bag of wooden xylophone blocks falling to the ground. The sound did not repeat. After a moment, she edged onwards, guided by slivers of moonlight. She entered a circle of firm, clear ground covered with a thin layer of dry leaves. A spindly shadow stretched up before her, barely distinguishable from the trees behind. It swayed, then arms unfolded from its side with balletic grace. It towered over her. A ground-length cloak shrouded its limbs. A finger emerged from the folds of tattered cloth, its skin the color of ash. The creature pointed at her. Speak your score. Its rasping whisper tumbled from far above. 
Iron bands locked around her chest, sweat pricked her hairline, and an uncontrollable shiver ran through her body. Trembling goose flesh grated against layers of fabric that now felt foolishly ill-matched for walking on a night such as this, into places such as this. Speak, it said again. She craned her neck towards the dark web of branches. Twenty-seven. Twenty-seven. It repeated. Malice dropped from the words. The clattering noise came again, but this time she saw its source. A wide crescent appeared at the uppermost extent of the figure. Long, thin teeth filled the space, their texture like raw wood stripped of its bark, and they chattered together. It was a laugh. The creature was laughing. <laughs> It dropped its extended finger and stepped aside with a flourish like a magician revealing a mysterious cabinet. Its cloak swished across the circle, making the sound she had heard echoing her steps. Behind where the figure had stood was a thin silver birch, its fist-width trunk previously hidden entirely by the creature and its robe. Twenty-eight, the creature whispered. The chattering laugh came again. <laughs> Genevieve lifted her skirts and fled. The thorns tore at her legs, branches whipping across her face, and still she ran. She rebounded from a black trunk that she had seen too late to avoid, tasted blood where it tore her lip, and ran on. More trunks emerged from the gloom, and yet more. She pushed forward, crashing through undergrowth, heedless of immediate damage, driven by the certainty of mortal danger behind her. She must be in the field by now, halfway to the village, but the tall trees still enclosed her. Her chest felt like a furnace. She needed to stop, to breathe. She took shelter behind an ancient yew. There was no sound of pursuit. Each breath drifted into the air before her, lit by scattered moonlight. The cold stung her ears, and she couldn't feel her toes at all. Her face was entirely numb, yet sweat still slicked her brow. Still no sound. She edged around the tree and squinted into the darkness. Her trail of destruction was clear, but there was no movement that she could see. No creature striding through the dark towards her. Above... There came the sound of clattering wood. Sharp wooden teeth glowed in the moonlight. They swooped down, grinning, opening wide, multiplying, encasing, crushing. Genevieve's driver checked her room shortly before dawn. She had requested an early start for the journey, but was not there. Nor was she anywhere at the inn. Only one set of footprints led out into the snow, away from the building. They were made by a woman's shoe size and slightly scuffed by skirts. The trail led to a patch of trees that grew unhindered despite the fertile land surrounding them. He walked a circle and found only her footsteps, with none leading away. His gut nodded as he peered into the shadows among the trunks, Mom? Ma'am? She could only be just within. With no other choice, he picked his way inside. 
At the center, there was an oil lamp, still lit, but no other trace of Genevieve Forsyth would ever be found. So that was The Longing Trees by Mata Hagas Barge. Thanks for being on the show, Mata. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me here. I was really excited about this one, mainly because I struggle to get into period pieces, both in books and in movies. And I kind of admittedly had this moment where I started your story, kind of rolled my eyes a little bit because I'm like, oh, this isn't up my alley, and then was immediately sucked into the world, especially once she gets the the story of the longing trees and then starts to go out into the snow. I, it just like, it really had me. So I want to know, is this your typical, like, do you write normally in older time periods or was this something new for you? Actually, no, no, I don't at all. I have been writing stuff for about 20 years now. Um, I, I used to have a website where I was making animations and writing stories and things like that and releasing stuff pretty much every two weeks. So uh, I think that's a pattern you're familiar with from your early times of doing things. But yeah, my, my fiction has always been set in the modern times. So it's interesting that um, just this time I decided, you know what, I think what would really fit, what would really bring out that mood, because you had this theme of kind of the dead of winter. You know, it gets to winter time. We start thinking about Dickens. We start thinking about these old-fashioned ghost stories. Um, so I fancied, uh, fancied going back a bit more old school and picking up on that old British vibe of uh, the traditional Victorian ghost story. Yeah, I love that. I, I was just saying to my wife last night, she had recently finished a book and was commenting on how they use social media in it and it felt like they weren't using it properly. I said something like, you know, though the best horror stories are told without any sort of, either without any sort of technology or like in the future of technology, but trying to be current and modern and work that in mm -hmm. sometimes can take away the, the scariness of being alone. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's what I really latched onto in this is is there there is no technology. So when she goes out into the field, there's no one knows she's there. Mm -hmm. She doesn't know where she's going, really. Uh, and it just was like this deep, dark hole that I couldn't wait to get into. Yeah, I mean, I think something about writing in a contemporary setting, as you say, is that we always we always, it feels like we've got the world at our fingertips because we kind of do. And there's very little of kind of developed nations, certainly, which don't have mobile phone coverage and this kind of thing. But it's become such a cliche now in writing to have the, oh, no, there's no coverage in this particular spot. Oh, my batteries have run out. Oh, my phone is broken. But I think that we can still do this stuff. We can still have this sense of isolation. We just need to make sure that it's driven by the character. Sure, you could phone your friends, but you'll be putting them in danger. Yeah, you could call the police, but they'll arrest you and then the ghost is still going to get you. I think that there's more that we can do. We can still have the, the connectedness of a mobile phone around us, but we can also still have that sense of isolation and fear. We just have to work harder, I think, as writers to make that work. And I think that's, that's something that it's always a challenge for us to, to, to use character to solve the problem. But I think that's what we have to do. We have to find our ways of doing it. But this time I took the easy way out and went old fashioned. <laughs> it, was, it was actually it was a really refreshing break for me because usually I have to try and think about why the character can't just run away, why they can't, can't, can't just get on a train um, or call in like the SWAT to, to come and shoot the beast in the head. So it was quite nice to have that sort of change in this one because. You know, I, I grew up in the 90s um, as a teenager and I have stood in a field by myself 
completely unconnected. And there is that sense that, yeah, you, you could not be found. Uh, <laughs> there's, no, there's no way anybody else knows that you're there. And there is such a vastness of the expanse of fields and woodland. And it's even in modern days, if you don't have phones with you, if you don't have maps with you, people can still go missing pretty easily. Yeah, yeah, and we've seen it in this past year, um, which is always scary. And I live in Los Angeles, and there are places in Los Angeles, one of the biggest cities in America, um, one of the most populated cities in America, and there are still places where I don't have cell phone service. And I'm always like, it's 2022. Wow. How do I not have service? Can't help but feel good on my social justice uh, stand there and kind of go, I bet there's a bit of a pattern about the people who live in that neighborhood who <laughs> may not be necessarily cherished by society. Yeah. Perhaps. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the unfortunate truth, the horror of our, our own reality. Um, yeah. So tell me, we met through, um, like everyone on this episode, we met through the AutoCrit community and the mm. Nightmare Fuel class. Can you tell me about your experience with that? Yeah, so I joined up with the class a few months ago. Um, as I mentioned, I've been writing for about 20 years and I write for video games most of the time. So I was uh, one of the main writers on an Aliens vs. Predator game back in 2010. Uh, I recently did the script for uh, Resident Evil Resistance, which is a multiplayer game, and I got the, the honor of creating a new character, essentially, for the Resident Evil um, pantheon of enemies. That's so cool. Uh, so that was a lot of fun. I mean, I, I got a sort of very quick brief, and then they're like, just write a good character. So I got to really make up a lot of stuff, Resident Evil. Um, I've got a little bit of work in the Dying Light 2 franchise coming out next year. I hope coming out next year. Uh, that's the most recent release date they've said for it. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, but I, I think even though I've been doing this for a long time, you can always learn more. There's, there's always something new out there. There's always a new perspective. And frankly, it's just very difficult actually to find courses or people specializing in talking about horror. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think as a genre, we are quite overlooked in terms of seriousness. Uh, and I, I think there's there's a lot of serious stuff that horror talks about and addresses. I mean, you, you just you used a moment ago a phrase about the horror of everyday living, this, this horror of modernity that we have. And there are a lot of terrible things that happen around us. And I think horror is incredibly powerful as a tool for coping. Um, it's, a, it's an incredible release for us to be able to embrace fear in a safe way and it actually is uh it's like doing aikido you know you learn to roll you learn to fall in a safe way so that if you do get thrown over on the street you're less likely to hurt yourself and i think horror can work like that it can prepare us for the horrors of the world around us um in these little safe parts and i think it's really important to be able to understand how to do that effectively how to do that responsibly i mean i think that we've seen a lot of horror fiction in the past which has used some very misogynistic actions as kind of a cheap way of going, this is awful, isn't it? And, I, and in some ways it didn't really, it, it almost felt like it was replicating misogyny rather than challenging misogyny. Mm -hmm. And I think we've got so much more that we can do with horror. And when you, when you see films like It Follows or Get Out, you see people who are really directly talking about sexuality, talk about race, talking about class, talking about faith. You know, the, all of these things like Midnight Mass. It's horror, yeah, but it's doing a lot more than just trying to scare people. Um, and I think that's the power of what horror can be. Yeah, and I, I love how, especially with Midnight Mass, you can go five, six episodes without having direct horror 
related. You know, you can really suck people in before you start to introduce the the really scary stuff. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, the so the auto crit kind of team, the auto crit group over there, they're one of the few people I've seen actually talking about horror seriously, really talking about it as a craft. And so I really wanted to um, to, to just join up with the course, see what people were talking about. As we, I think with all things, especially if you've done your research before, there's a lot of familiar with, but it's also so great to hear it recapitulated, put into a kind of curriculum almost, um, to go through the exercises with them. It was a really fun experience. Um, I felt very boosted by doing it. Yeah, yeah, I'm um I'm I'm a camera geek. That's my uh, side hobby. From my side hobby um, is taking pictures and using old cameras. And uh, anytime I get a new camera, especially a modern one, especially a video camera, I will go through the manual from start to finish, and I will press all the buttons. If it says switch it on, I will switch it on. Even though it seems really dumb, going through those memories, those muscle memories and and creating new ones with the new camera or the new story you're writing or the new theme you're experiencing. All, all of that is super helpful, even if it feels a bit redundant, which is what I really loved about the class. I never really took any writing classes before this one, but I knew a lot of it from being in school and just from experimenting and figuring things out on my own or watching YouTube videos. So it was really refreshing to have the basics there, but then I felt like it really challenged me. And when I took it, it, we, it didn't have the, the curriculum from Rain Hall. And I've been curious about what that part of it was like. Yeah, really interesting. I actually have one of Rain's books before, which was about kind of editing down your text when you've got, you know, you've written 120,000 words and most publishers are expecting 80 to 90,000. It was a book just about cutting out extra stuff, which in some regards is just about improving your writing. But yeah, I, it was a very interesting thing to go through, looking at the different exercising exercises, uh, reading through the different perspectives on that. It really gave a lot more content on top of the discussions and on top of the little exercises that were already there. So, yeah, I think that's really boosted it and giving you a lot more uh, a lot more to get your teeth into. Awesome. One of the other things actually I got really from it was there was a, a recommendation that uh, Gareth, who's one of the hosts of the Autocrit uh, teams, they made a recommendation of a book called Writing in the Dark by Tim Wagoner. And I've just been reading that over Christmas and that's a superb guide again to writing horror and really going into great depth and really covering a lot of ideas and I think doing a fantastic job of, of again, taking horror seriously and really thinking about how do we do this as a craft? How do we get better at doing this? So as with all things, you know, it's it's not like you take a course and suddenly you're brilliant. It's every step that you take pushes you further. Everything gives you a new perspective or reinforces things which perhaps you should have paid attention to more in your writing. Um, and I think the autocrit course was great for that. And it's guided me onwards to new resources, to new people in the community, so I can keep on learning and hopefully keep on getting better. Yeah, I've been loving making connections with other writers because for a long time I was just isolated doing this myself. And now I get to have these conversations with people like you. So when it comes to writing for video games, I've I've found I've I haven't played a ton. I'm I love them. I think it's some of the most compelling storytelling there is out there because you get to make decisions and you get more immersed in the story than passively watching a film. And and for me, even reading a book, how is it different writing for a game where people can make choices? In my mind, it's this giant web of possibilities and it could be endless. Like I've wanted to write my own choose your own ending story and just the thought of how many possibilities I would have to work out has kept me from doing it. Um, mm -hmm. So can you <laughs> can you make it a little less scary for me? 
no. Um, <laughs> the <laughs> it is it is a big challenge because you know when you when you think about the different mediums in if you're just doing prose writing you can be absolutely inside the head of the character you can do close first person you can do first person you can really get the thoughts of the character out and in the mind of the viewer or the reader in this case but you can't really do a jump scare in a film you can do a jump scare you've got music and things like that but you can't really tell what's going on inside the head of the character unless you do a voiceover and a voiceover sometimes works, but it's not going to work for a lot of different um, different genres. When you're writing for games, you've got the choice that uh, perhaps you probably have a bit of speaking out loud. That's fairly common. You can have people commentate, commentating on it. You can find books. You can let people read things. You can have audio logs. You've got all these different things to see, but you can't necessarily know what the player is going to do next. So you have this thing where you kind of go, okay, they could turn left or right. And typically what we do is we go, well, if they follow the left one, they're going to end up in this place. And if they follow the right one, they're still going to end up in this place, but they felt like they made a choice. And so essentially what we do is we tend to let people branch off, have their own exploration, and then we bring all of those lines back into one, two or three different options. So they've actually taken a lot of different routes and there's a lot of power in that. But to be able to even make the game and finish it without having, you know, 17 million different endings, we do need to bring the players back to kind of one or two different routes that they take through that. You know, there's different ways of doing it. Like, like in fiction, there's lots of different ways of making a game as well. Some games are going to give you 30 different endings, but most games are going to give you between one and three, most commonly only one. So we try to reflect as much as possible the, well, the, the hero character's um, journey. I use that word, that hero's journey, very cautiously in writing. <laughs> we, try, we try to let the hero kind of have their own journey, they with the player make their own choices. But in the end, we also still want to have that kind of authorial control where we know that, you know, if they get a challenge at this moment and a quiet moment afterwards, we know it's going to be a good experience for them. So we want to give them power, but we also want to go, yeah, as a creator, I also have a hand in shaping your experience. So it is quite difficult. <laughs> I can't give you very reassuring words. It is, it is just difficult, but uh, it's a lot of fun. In some ways, it is a little bit like screenwriting, except that every single member on the set could say, no, I can't do the lighting for that scene. You need to rewrite it. Because you're not just, you don't just walk into a studio and go, I've got a great idea for a story. And the whole studio goes, oh my God, we're going to stop what we're making and make your story. You work with every single person on that studio. And, you know, if you say, and then the house burns into flames and someone says to you, I can't get a good enough frame rate for that with all those flame effects going on and particle effects. We can't have that many flames. You can't have that many flames in your story. So it can be literally down to the amount of particle effects that can be rendered on screen about whether you can write that scene or not, which is very different from, you know, com well, almost complete freedom in a novelist. Uh, obviously, we've still got market conditions and things mm -hmm. like that, but you've got almost complete freedom in your own writing there through to screenwriting where you've got freedom-ish, but there's going to be people who have budget concerns through to making a game where actually you often have very little freedom but that can actually really push your writing and can really force you to think carefully about how do I create character? How do I tell this world story to the player? I, I've talked a couple of times on my show about how writing is therapeutic for me and I like the ability to make the choice to kill a character or let them survive or let them be maimed. And kind of the cool thing about video games is you can explore as the player 
a scenario where you die and then you can come back and not make that same decision or go back and say, I know how I could overcome this. There's just so many more options. It's then a challenge, though, as a writer to decide whether you want to include those multiple deaths in part of your story or whether you just kind of go, yeah, yeah, that bit didn't happen. We're just going to, we're just going to roll back a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we keep on going forward. And that's, you know, how much we can integrate the story with the gameplay mechanics and vice versa. These things always link up to each other. There was this whole um, kind of dead end of academia, which was uh, narratology versus ludology, which is basically how do, we, how do games tell stories versus how do games play. And this kind of very fake um, academic disjoint between these two things was really interesting because actually these two things are always integrated. They always have to work together. And if you're going to do an effective story in a game, the game and the story have to, you know, these are you can't pull these things apart from each other. It's ridiculous. I'm a professor at Brady University of Applied Sciences and I teach about storytelling. I'm also a narrative director on a game that has not been announced yet. In my everyday work, in my teaching, in my research, we know that you can't just separate little bits out. You have to look at the whole thing. You have to look at the gestalt of what you're trying to create as an experience to really create something powerful for your audience. Well, thanks so much for being on. I'm trying to keep these little interstitials short because I chose to do three stories this week instead of one. Um, <laughs> so we know where we can play some, uh, play out some of your stories. Where uh, are there places where we can read your stories as well? At the moment, it's probably best to follow me on Twitter so you can keep my uh, latest updates and see what I'm up to. So that's at Matta Haggis. Uh, no, no spaces, no different punctuation in there. I am trying to look for an agent. I've got a novel written that I'm uh, querying agents with. So if there's any agents out there, then hopefully I might turn off on a bookshelf in uh, you know a couple of years' time, uh, hopefully less. But yeah, if people are interested, do, do follow me on Twitter, contact on LinkedIn. Um, if people want to hear me talk about video game writing, uh, if they just do a search for GDC and Matter Haggis or Matter Haggis Burridge, I got married after giving those talks, but often both ones. Um, then, yeah, have a search. There's a couple of those on YouTube as well, and people can see the kind of things I talk about. But yeah, Twitter's probably the best place to get in contact at the moment. All right, that's great, and we'll put the links below. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks so much for joining me for this special episode of Haunting Season. Like I said, this will be my last for a while as I work on bigger things. And I'm really excited to share with you what that means in the near future. Thank you so much, listener. I really appreciate you. And if you want to interact with me more, you can check me out on TikTok. I'm there almost every single day. Haunting Season was created by me, Joshua Sterling Bragg, and is a joint production of Matt Gielen and Believe Limited. Executive produced by Matt Gielen, Patrick James Lynch, and Ryan Gielen. Special thanks to our authors today. I have links in the description below to all of their work. And a special thanks to our sponsor, Autocrit and Nightmare Fuel. This episode was produced by Keith Corneluck, edited by me, Joshua Sterling Bragg, performed by me as well, and featured music made exclusively for the show by North Innsbruck. Thanks so much for listening, friends. And remember, we're more likely to survive if we stick together. I'll see you soon. Hold up. 